I'm Carl Ulrich, Vice Dean of Entrepreneurship and Innovation at the Wharton School, and this is Launchpad, where I talk to successful entrepreneurs about the secrets to launching and growing their startups. I'm very happy to welcome to the show Blake Scholl, who's the founder and CEO of Boom Technology. Blake, welcome to Launchpad. Hi, Carl. Thanks for having me. You know, I want to first point our listeners to your website, and and I think I've got the URL right. It's boomsupersonic.com. Boomsupersonic.com. Right. Did I get that right? Boomsupersonic.com. Exactly. Okay. Excellent. All right, Blake, you've got pretty audacious plans, so give us the elevator pitch for Boom. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, as, as many listeners probably know, it's been a long time since we've had a speed up in air travel. Uh, we've been flying basically the same airplane designs that we've had since the 1960s, and it still takes the same amount of time to get across the planet as it used to. We had a supersonic aircraft in Concorde that was two and a half times faster than most things out there, and yet it was too expensive to fly. We flew it for 30 years, never took it mainstream, and shut it down. And, uh, and at Boom, we are picking up where Concorde left off. We're building a new generation supersonic airplane that is significantly more efficient and then significantly more affordable than Concorde. So New York to London, think, could be three hours and 15 minutes instead of seven. Uh, but for the same price, you pay for a business class ticket. So this is dramatically more affordable high-speed travel. Okay. So let me just make sure I get these numbers right and and make sure our listeners understand. So you're basically a a, a a conventional commercial airframe is going to fly at around uh, 600 miles per hour or something like that. So you're talking mm-hmm. about going twice as fast, right? 1,200 miles an hour, something like that? Uh, more like 1,400 miles an hour. It's actually 2.6 times faster than anything you can get from Boeing or Airbus. Wow. So 1,400 miles yeah. an hour. So speed of sound is, th- is 1,100? How, how, what's the speed of sound? It depends on depends on altitude. Yeah, it's uh, the mid six hundreds. Oh, is that right? This is, so this yeah, is this way. Is, this is Mach two point uh, one point uh, two. No, it's two point something, right? It's two point two. Yeah, yeah, two point so, Mach two point two. Uh, yeah, wow. Concorde was two point oh, and uh, thanks to newer materials, we can actually go a little bit faster now. Okay, so and and that speed's super important. You know, if you think about. Uh, New York to London today, most people fly that as a red eye and they try to get some sleep on the airplane. And if you made it just a little bit faster, it actually makes the flight worse because now you're landing in London with even less. Agree. Yeah. And so you have to give a big speed up so that instead of flying these red eyes, you'll take a daytime flight instead. And you can actually go over and back in the same day and have enough time on the ground to get some real business done. Yeah. So let me let me think about the math. So uh, the scenario would be I get on the plane at, at 7 a.m. East Coast time. Mm-hmm. You can get me there at, at 10.15, 10.30, let's say, but then add six, add five hours, I guess. So you, you can get me there for dinner, for sure, early afternoon, late afternoon. Uh- yeah. Yeah. So if you, the first flight of the day is probably a 6 a.m. departure. Yeah. That would get you at Heathrow at 2.15 in the afternoon Heathrow time. Yeah. Which gives you time to actually get downtown, do a couple late afternoon meetings, go to, go to dinner, and then uh, you catch, say, a 9 o'clock p.m. London time flight back. Um, and that would put you back in New York in time to get home and tuck your kids into bed. Wow. And I noticed on your website, business class air, air, airfare to, to London, you're, you're saying you can hit about that price point, which is probably around... I think you had it a little lower than I would have guessed, uh, three thousand bucks, something like that. 
Uh, we, we were saying five, 5,000 round trip. 5,000 round trip. Okay, 5,000 round trip. Yeah, that's about what it is, I think, at least from Philly. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, so I, I guess my reaction to that would be this is an example of an opportunity where, sure, I mean, the market need is sort of self-evident. If you can, If mm-hmm. you can take the same price point, cut half the time out of it, uh, of course, it's, it's a complete no-brainer. So mm-hmm. the it strikes me as one of these opportunities where it's all tech risk, basically, and maybe some regulatory risk. There's there's effectively no market risk if you could actually deliver uh, that on that benefit proposition. Do I read that correctly? It's I, I, I agree. I agree yeah. completely. And you know, at the same price point, who wouldn't like to get there in half the time? Right. Um, from a passenger perspective, and then airlines. You know, today they compete on price and they compete on like champagne and mood lighting, boy, airlines would love to have something that's really different to offer their customers. Yeah. So the, the market there, it's, you know, it's a massive execution problem. Like you have to get the technology to really work. Um, you have to deliver it. It has to be safe. Uh, and, you know, and of course, it's capitally intensive. Right. So it's, it's, certainly not, it's certainly not easy, but it is possible. All right. So let's take that as the premise. And I, I, I'm, I'd be willing to lay out a bet, Blake, that that they're not the airlines are not going to match the prices that would be stupid uh it strikes me especially <laughs> in a world of limited supply but uh but let's just leave that as a given yeah you're suggesting the cost structure the asim- the, the long term cost structure is such that you could sell it at at, at comparable price i don't think they will yeah. but but they could yeah, okay I, I think you're i think you're exactly right but by getting the cost structure at parity then you don't have the risk of what will passengers be willing to pay for higher speed. Right. The answer can be nothing, and it still works. It still works. Okay, so then that raises the obvious question of uh, what's changed. You attributed the mm-hmm. failure of the Concorde to the to the economics, and I wonder if you can say a little bit more about that, and and then and then turn to what's changed. That's right. So I mean, the backstory on Concorde, you know, really remember it was designed about sixty years ago. And it was a joint venture between the French and British governments you know, in the middle of the Cold War. So this was a glory project. This is not a project that was ever launched with economics mm. uh, you know, at top of mind. So, uh, so Mach 2 passenger aircraft, but with 1960s technology. And the result was that efficiency in the fuel economy was pretty poor. Mm. And that pushed up ticket prices. Uh, so it was expensive to fly. And then, moreover, there were 100 seats on the airplane. So the, the ticket prices in today's dollars are about 20000 round trip. And it, you can't find uh, 100 people I see. who want to pay $20,000 to go somewhere. So now, you don't, uh, so now most of the seats are empty. Now it doesn't work in many routes. There's no economy of scale. And, uh, and the whole thing is just extremely niche. But fast forward, you know, fast forward half a century. Today we've got better aerodynamics. We've got new materials. We've got improved engines. And if you uh, if you can using all those things, you can build an airplane that's enough more efficient than Concorde that a seat on this airplane is the same cost profile as a lay flat bed in a subsonic airplane. Okay. Uh, and then if you put the and then if you put the right number of seats on the airplane, and I think a hundred is too many. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you put the right number of seats on the airplane, then instead of only working on one or two routes, it can work on hundreds of routes, and then mm-hmm. you get economies of scale. Yeah, and and say some more about that. So, why I saw on your website you're proposing around forty five seats. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. That's right. So why is that the magic number? Is it because well, why don't you tell me why it's the magic number? Of course, yeah, you'd so, prefer so, small. You'd prefer small in terms of routes, but in in conventional airframes, you for 
prefer big for efficiency? Yeah, well, the intuition is the higher the ticket price, the smaller the airplane needs to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, if Concorde had been a 20-seat airplane, it might still be flying. Mm-hmm. And it could have been a stepping stone towards something better. Um, but, you know, at business class prices, you want to size the airplane about like the business class cabin of a subsonic airplane. I see. And, and that's, you know, that's 40-odd seats on most aircraft. So the one way to think of what we're doing is taking, you know, taking a Boeing 787 and we're chopping off the back part of the airplane mm-hmm. and making the front part go really fast. Mm-hmm. So if you're an airline and you can operate that airplane and fill those seats, uh, today you could fly supersonic on those routes and fill those seats. Yeah, really interesting. If you go... Yeah, if you go too much smaller, uh, you find that the the economics blow up and the per seat costs are too high. If you go too much larger, you have seat fill risk, and then the overall size and complexity of the product goes up. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this is you know this is an audacious mission, especially for a startup. And you have to at every step of it, you have to say, how do I keep this as small and simple as it can be, so I can get that first one out there and really working. And then I can go and do version two and version three. Yeah. I want to ask just uh, just out of curiosity, another couple of questions about the technology. The, uh, mm-hmm. I, if I look at your concept designs, mm-hmm. they they bear a pretty similar result. You know, they're pretty similar to what the Con- what I remember the Concorde looking like. It's a very yeah. aerodynamic looking thing, very small diameter fuselage. And so it makes me wonder if the big advances haven't been in the engines in the last 60 years. Is that really what happened that makes this possible? Um, no, it's a lot of little things that all add up. There's really? No, there's yeah. no magic thing. So if you look at our airplane and you put it next to Concorde and you squint, it, it looks the same. But if you look closely, there's a lot of subtle differences. Mm-hmm. So to give you a couple examples, uh, Concorde uh, was basically a tube with wings. It's the same size all the way along the fuselage. Well, it turns out for a supersonic airplane, uh, the best shape is very dynamic. It's very fluid. Mm. It's a little bit thicker in the middle, a little bit skinnier towards the back. And that was, uh, with aluminum fabrication technology, it's basically not practical to fabricate that shape. But with carbon fiber composites, you can do it. Mm -hmm. Um, And and the wing shape is subtly different. You know, one, uh, and the development you, you use to get to that has changed tremendously. It used to be you had to go to wind tunnels to do a test. And I wouldn't tell you, you make a model, you get your design idea, you make a little model, you put it in the wind tunnel, you collect a bunch of data, you learn, and then you're ready to try the next idea. And that whole process takes about six months and it costs millions of dollars. And as a result, you just can't test many ideas. But today we have simulation, uh, simulated wind tunnels that are very accurate and you can do six months of wind tunnel testing in about half an hour. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that it's, it's, it feels like cheating. We get to test like a thousand ideas. Yeah. And as a result, we can come up with a refined design that's more aerodynamically efficient. So that's, you know, that's aero. And then you also get some benefit and performance from materials being lighter and handling temperature better. And then, you know, engines as well. Concorde had afterburners. And uh, boy, those are not fuel efficient. Right. And today you don't need an afterburner to go supersonic. Yeah. Is it still a and I'm not much of an air, airplane geek, but it's still, does it use a high-bypass turbofan like on a like on a, on a a commercial jet? Is it that basic it kind? A, it uses a medium-bypass turbofan. Okay. Uh, so it, it turns out the faster, so for folks who may not know what turbofans and bypasses are, if you look at a big uh, you know, Boeing or Airbus aircraft today, the engines, uh, the engines have great big fans on front, and most of the air actually blows around the core of the jet engine. That's that's called bypass air. It's a propeller. It's a shrouded propeller, basically. It's, that's it's what people don't re- realize. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's a good way to think of it. Um, 
And uh, for a subsonic airplane, you want those great big fans, and they're quiet and they're efficient. Um, for a supersonic airplane, the faster you're going, the smaller the fan that you want, mm-hmm. uh, basically because supersonic airplanes want to be really skinny and aerodynamic. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so at, one of the reasons we're aiming at Mach 2.2, uh, 2.2 times the speed of sound, is because at that speed, there's what I call the Goldilocks fan. And the Goldilocks fan is large enough to be quiet and friendly around an airport and meet noise regulations, uh, yet small and compact enough to be efficient at high speed. So it's a, it's a medium bypass turbofan. All right. Super interesting. So, Blake, where did you hatch this crazy scheme? <laughs> well, I, I'm an airplane guy by passion, but not officially by training. So, so only someone from outside the industry would be crazy enough. Is that the, is uh, that the in, message? In a, in a certain sense, you know, if you look at the big advances in aerospace just in the last few years, uh, like, you know, SpaceX is a great example. Right. They've been founders from outside of the industry. Um, but, uh, but yes, yeah, so I've been flying for fun since I was in college. Uh, I never got to fly on Concord. Uh, I set a Google alert in 2007 on supersonic jet because I wanted to be the first to know when someone figured it out. But it was, you know, crickets, crickets, science fiction project, you know, maybe a business jet that I could never see myself affording to fly on. Um, and so, uh, meanwhile, I had a first career doing Internet things, sold a company to Groupon, and afterwards uh, I figured I got to look at I got to look at this and see whether it's technically possible, whether it's a decent idea, and whether there's any way a startup could possibly attack it. Mm-hmm. And I, I thought I thought I would look at it for two weeks and get it out of my system, uh, but instead, what I learned was you only have to do 30% better than Concorde in core gas mileage. Just 30%. Really? 50 years ago at slide rules. Yeah, it's a surprisingly low number. And all the input data for that's on Wikipedia. You just go look and verify yeah. this yourself. Yeah. And you think, geez, well, 30% over 50 years? We should be able to do that. Yeah. Um, and at that point, uh, at that point, I got serious about starting the company and uh, learning more in more detail how you get that 30 percent. Yeah. So I'm I'm I, I still want to go back to this moment. Did you I know you're trained technically, but not in not in aeronautical mm-hmm. engineering. Did you go consult with some people who could run the numbers for you and that sort of thing? Uh uh, because um, I know this is a tight-knit community, and these people would probably very readily share their opinions. But I, I just wondered yeah. how you've edited it. Yeah. Well, my uh, being an engineer in my core, uh, I always want to understand things for myself. And I think most people underestimate what they can learn if they're really motivated and they try hard. Mm-hmm. Um, so I started reading aerospace textbooks. Um, I built a spreadsheet model of the airplane that seemed to say it could work. Mm-hmm. And uh, I took it to a professor at Stanford and said, hey, could you look at this and tell me whether I'm crazy? And uh, he gave me some feedback that was along the lines of, if you do this, you should really try harder because the assumptions here are conservative. Oh, really? Um, and so at that point, I figured I either had no courage or I was going to start the business. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, the, but no, we didn't hire any consultants. We talked to a lot of smart people and got yeah. feedback. But yeah. I deeply believe if you're going to go do something like this, you have to understand the essence of it yourself. Yeah. Okay. Uh, if you're going to be confident to run the company. All right. So, so the immediate follow-on, I, I got to tell you a little backstory and a, a happy coincidence on today's show. So, I teach a little session on innovation uh, for executive education, and I talk about what are the barriers to innovation in an industry. And I contrast two industries. Mm-hmm. The first is food and beverage, where I say the barrier to innovate in that industry is a kitchen. You have to have a kitchen to innovate in that industry. And then I put up yep. a photo of the Boeing 787, and I say the barrier to innovation in commercial airframes is you have to be a government 
because you need to be able to put up $20 billion to go do something new in that industry. And you're a guy in a garage. So what has changed that lets you completely upend my, my you know, this, this, this lesson? Because I got to change this lesson. I got to understand right. how it is, what's changed about the world that lets you do something that would probably normally require a $20 billion investment. Yeah, it's a great, great question. I mean, so first off, I'd point out the example of SpaceX because they've done they've done a similar thing in in rockets. And if it weren't for that as a success story, we probably wouldn't have been inspired to start this company. Yeah. Um, but what's so what's changed? Uh, well, it turns out a small company can be a lot more nimble than than a Boeing. Like if you look at Boeing, for example, uh, they were you know, they spent thirty billion dollars to develop the seven eight seven. And part of the reason for that was they outsourced tons of things. They had a supply chain with a factory in every congressional district. Right. And, you know, that's politically optimized. It's not optimized for cost or agility. Um, and you, on the other hand, if you are a small company with an ambitious mission, in a way the ambitious missions are actually easier because you can get great people to come help you with them. And we have, we have a team here at Boom that, you know, Boeing couldn't hope to get. You couldn't hope to get something working on, you know, some new turboprop or some new business jet. Uh, but for supersonic airplanes that a lot of people can afford to fly, you can get that team. Because and these people are, are, are passionate, right? They just, they're, like, they're, they can't imagine not being part of this if it happens. Right. Yeah. Right, exactly. And so you get your pick of the best people in the world. And because of that, you need fewer of them. And you can put them all in one room, so there's no communication barrier. Literally, entire engineering team sits in one room, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and then you you know you tackle it uh, step by step, and you build you know you build simple things first that you can do with little money, and then you you progress towards the bigger, more expensive things. So the the first thing we're actually building at the company is a one third scale technology demonstrator, uh, and so that's a flying airplane. We call it uh, the XB1 or, or Baby Boom. And it, you know, it will go Mach 2.2. It will set speed records. Uh, but that that little airplane is comparatively very inexpensive to create, and yet it validates the key aspects of the design. And so you, you know, you progressively get more traction with technology. You get more traction with customers. You get more traction with suppliers. And if you keep a lean culture, you won't need you won't need 20 billion. You know, you you might need one. Um, but you can get it if you prove enough progress along the way. Yeah. So I, I love this idea of the demonstrator. I got a, a you know, it raises a hundred questions in my mind, but, but the first one is you describe it as, yeah, just this little demonstrator thing, but it's a, it's a airplane that flies at Mach 2. I mean, it is still an amazing engineering achievement and it cannot mm-hmm. be done for $10 million, right? So what, what is the, what does that milestone require and, and who can you get to place that kind of bet? Um, so it's, it's not that far off from 10 million actually. Is it it's really? A few tens of, it's, it's a few tens of millions. It's a yeah. lot less than you would think. Uh, cause, because you're not inventing every part of it from scratch. You're using as much off the shelf as you can. For example, the engines uh, are general electric off the shelf engines. Mm-hmm. You can go buy them. Um, the uh, you know and then the you know, as many other parts are off the shelf and some vendors will give you things free because they want to be part of it yeah uh, for example and so you put all, you know you put all that together and you know, the uh, there are investors who will back this yeah who, who see the prize is very very large and you know it's a point where you go from uh, you know a band of folks in a hangar who say they're going to build a supersonic airplane to there's a bird in the sky flying setting speed right. records 
you know, the first independently developed private jet ever. At that point, you've created something massively valuable. Right. And uh, and that's that's a big step change in valuation. It's actually a great investment. Mm-hmm. Wow, you're good. You're good at that at that sales pitch. That's good. I, I've gotten a little bit of practice. <laughs> I'll tell you, the first the first money in the company when it was literally me and two guys in a basement. That was hard. Yeah. Uh, but we now now we've made a lot of progress. We have we have a launch customer. We have backing from uh, Honeywell uh, to be a supplier for the airplane. Like it's 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 gotten a lot easier, but it's still you know it's work. Yeah. Uh, so you casually mentioned launch customer, but that launch customer is a pretty famous uh, entity. So say a little bit yeah. about that. It's it's Virgin. Right. Uh, so Virgin Group has options on the first ten aircraft. And through Virgin Galactic, they're also helping us with flight testing and manufacturing. So it's, uh, you know, for us, it's really a dream deal. Uh, not only is it a launch customer, and basically the best one you could hope for. Yeah. Uh, but also it's, it's meaningful technical assistance and, uh, you know, access to hardware that otherwise we would have to go buy for ourselves. Yeah. And I guess I would say a huge social proof, right? If you've got, mm-hmm. right, I mean, the, you know, if you've got the Virgin Group, uh putting up any money at all, even lending their name to it. Huge social proof, right. which which goes a long ways towards that financing, I suspect. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, what is the probability this demonstrator is a product? Uh, basically zero, unfortunately. Um, yeah. It would be great. It would be great if it were. But here's the thing. Um, you know, one other way you make this simple and inexpensive is you design it for what a test pilot can fly, not uh, what a, you know, yeah. What not what a normal commercial pilot could fly. Uh, it's not going to be certified to take passengers yeah. because it's smaller. It's got about a thousand miles of range, so it's yeah. harder to see if it's useful. Um, so you know, I could see it being uh, a toy for uh, a very wealthy person who loves airplanes. But you might sell one or two of them, yeah. and the the reality is you're much better off to focus on the big prize. Yeah, and then and then uh, a related question, I suppose, is is what the these, if I if I can just take the numbers off your website, the price tag on this is a couple hundred million dollars, which will that's probably right. buy you a seven thirty seven or something now, right? I mean, that's that's that's. I mean, it's it's still it's a good chunk of a change. Um, how many of those do you need to sell to have the business be viable? A, a shockingly small number, but it yeah. turns out the market's actually pretty big. Uh, a few different folks have taken a look at the market size on this. We have our own analysis. Uh, also a third party that does airline forecasting looked at it, and they mm. forecasted 1,300 units. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. I mean, that's more than there are 787s by far, right? It's about, it's about the same number, actually. Okay, uh, yeah. This 787 order book is expected to come in around 1,300 when, all right. that, when that's all said and done. All right. Uh, and you know, and the, the intuition is this works in 500 routes globally. And and you start to think about what is what are the second-order effects. If you look back in history... When the first jets were introduced, for example, say U.S. West Coast to Hawaii, uh, jets made it two to three times faster to get to Hawaii, and the result was people went six times more often yeah. in the first 10 years. Uh, so if that holds anywhere close to true for this, it won't be 1,300 units. It'll be a lot more, or we'll need to go build a new one that's much larger to take all the passengers. Yeah. So I want to I want to ask you a—I mean, I, I believe it. I, I totally believe it. I, I just as an aside, I have recently I spent a lot of time in China, probably a month, a year, four trips. And if you could tell me I can get San Francisco to Shanghai in five hours, it becomes a completely different proposition for me. And I'll go 10 times uh, for sure. Absolutely. So, yeah. So I yeah. To- totally get that. Um, yeah. And those are 
ten thousand dollar airplane tickets. So so you know that's a that's that's quite a business for an airline as well. Um, mm-hmm. um, that's right. Yeah. I, you know, and another way to think of the economics of this. So uh, in long haul international travel, those seats at the front of the airplane, it's only ten percent of seats, but it's nearly half the revenue, and it's the majority of the profit. Mm-hmm. So um, so economically, the plane we're building. Uh, every time it flies, it returns nearly all the profit of a 787, e- even without any price premium. If you charge a price premium for speed, then it returns more than a 787. But then because it's faster, you can do two to three times the flights in the same time. Uh, so you get way better utilization of the airplane, better return on capital. You get more out of your pilot time, out of your crew time. You probably even save on champagne because people aren't on the plane <laughs> as long as they would to drink as much, right? Yeah, you don't need those beds either. Right. right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, that's awesome. So here, here's a here's a fairly general. I, I want to extract a principle here and ask your advice on it. So there, 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 there are twenty different areas you could innovate heavily with in 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 aircraft, and and you've picked off basically going fast efficiently. Um, and I wonder if you also are pushing the boundaries on the avionics and controls and so forth, or if you've basically said, hey, let's not mess with that. Let's just make this really simple uh, and focus our energy on the airframe and propulsion. Yes. So we've, um, you know, we've picked ourselves a pretty hard problem overall. And so you have to limit how much stuff you take on all at once. And so the, the, the philosophical approach on the entire airplane is we're only going to use proven technology. The, mm-hmm. the engines are a derivative of commercial engines that are flying on other airplanes. The materials are the same kind of thing that the FAA already knows how to approve. Uh, the aerodynamics are not radical. They're a refinement of what worked on Concorde. And, you know, and for, these, you know, for those reasons, that's why you can get it done without spending $30 billion and why, why it's practical now. Because some of these technologies, like the carbon fiber, for example, right. has only been accepted by regulators recently. Yeah, but, so, you know, but it's well accepted. Of, yeah, yeah. Well accepted. You know, Boeing yeah. sent billions to get the rule book written, and we get to draft off that. We, we get to go uh, follow the rule book and not have to pay to write it. Mm-hmm. And that's, that, that's huge. Yeah, this, this would not have worked five or ten years ago because that rule book didn't exist, and also the computing power to replace wind tunnels uh, didn't exist, so those are both those are both pretty recent. This is you know, this is the right time, but you know so the, we've got lots and lots of ideas about avionic improvements and engine improvements and like you know funky aerodynamic things we could do, and we're putting them all in our back pocket and we're saving them for version two, because uh, we have to we have to take as much risk as we can off the table for version one. So I that's the point I want to underscore for our listeners because essentially zero of our listeners is going to take on a technical challenge like this, but every entrepreneur has to make a list of priorities and decide what is for now and what's for next time. And there is no true MVP of a, well, there is an MVP for a minimum viable product for an airplane, but it has to have a lot of stuff. You can't launch it without wings, but, but you still can prioritize. And that's a, a super important lesson. And the fact that you're doing it even here makes it reinforces how important it is more generally. So I think that's a that's a great insight. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that principle completely. We, you know, we think of this as the minimum viable supersonic airplane, which sounds kind of funny when you say it, but it's as small and simple and frankly as slow as it can be while still being compelling to a market that's large enough to make the business work. All right. I we have like ten seconds. Uh well, give me give me uh your ninety five percent confidence interval on when we are going to be able to fly on this plane. 
It's going to be early 2020s. Early 2020s. All right. I will live long enough. So that's good. I'm oh, very, absolutely. I'm We're glad. fans of speed. We're doing this as fast as we can. All right. Hey, Blake, it was so interesting. Thanks so much for joining us. Likewise. Thanks for having me. All right. For more information about Boom, you can visit boomsupersonic.com. I'm Carl Ulrich, Vice Dean of Entrepreneurship and Innovation at Wharton. Launchpad is produced by Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, on Sirius XM Channel 111. The show airs live on Wednesdays from 7 to 9 p.m. You can find more episodes of this podcast on SoundCloud or on iTunes.